there's a major sporting event that's coming up in the next month, and I know the whole world and many of you are anticipating it uh, very, very much so. I'm not talking about the World Cup finals, though I know some of you are looking forward to that and have been watching a lot of soccer, something some of you don't do, but once every, you know, four years, but uh, that's me. Um, I'm not talking about the Tour de France, though some of you probably are excited about that also. I'm not talking about Wimbledon or the British Open. Those are all coming up in July. I'm talking about the 2018 World Wife Carrying Championship. Uh, I know you're excited about this one. Um, you know, this is a real thing. It's held every year in Finland in July with 80 husband-wife teams from all over the world competing. Um, it is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> it is a husband carrying his wife in a race. Uh, it's this quarter-mile, approximately quarter-mile course that's littered with all these obstacles that they have to climb under and go under, climb over, go under, and, and wade through water and all these kinds of things. And and so, so some of the teams, you can carry your wife in any way you want. You can carry a piggyback, you know, like we carry our kids, that kind of thing. You can use the fireman's carry and throw over your shoulder. Or the most popular method is called the Estonian carry. There's a picture that you can throw up on the screen now, Adam, and this is, shows how you do this. So I don't recommend trying this, uh, but it, it, it is as bizarre as it sounds. And as you can imagine, it's not uncommon for there to be many head injuries for the wife um, as they get banged on logs and that kind of thing. But Well, I'm not sure if this kind of competition strengthens or hurts these marriages. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that we want to try this, but maybe we could you know, do a church picnic next year, have a little competition or something. We have the land to do this. Uh, thanks, Adam. You can... Move on. Um, what does this have to do with First Peter three seven? I don't really know, but I I read the story and I'm preparing as I was preparing this week, and and it is something that's coming up, and I thought it was amusing. And we're talking about husbands and wives, and wives being a weaker vessel, and maybe you can say marriage is a race filled with obstacles, and husbands we need strong, oh, whatever. Okay, but we are we are talking about in this context of marriage. Last week we saw in those six verses that we just read, Peter laid out for us the role of the sojourning wife in her marriage. She, like all Christians, we are, as Peter describes us, exiles and sojourners in this world. We're, this is not our home land. We are citizens of heaven. And, and so, uh, so, so we're passing through this world. It's not our own. And we're to live uh, our conducts to be a witness to the world around us. This goes all the way back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which is kind of the introduction to this whole section. And so then Peter addresses specifically those, as in his exhortation to the wives, he ex- addresses those wives who are not just exiled in the culture, but as we said, exiled in their marriage to these to their unbelieving husbands. And we just read this. And so we saw how the gospel gives shape to her unique role in that marriage. And so she's to hope in God alone, like the women of old. She's, she's to, therefore, because she, her hope is in God, she can be courageous. She doesn't have to fear anything. And as she has hope in God in this and this fearlessness, then she can have manifest this uh, tranquil and gentle spirit. It's not a personality trait. It's not that she's shy. It's just that her, her heart is at rest in the Lord. And, and so therefore she conducts herself with respect and purity and submitting herself to her own husband. As to the Lord, for the Lord's sake. 
And so today now we're, we're looking at the husbands. And so we had six verses addressing the wives, one verse addressing the husband. I'm not making any kind of statement about what those numbers mean or anything like that to either. But, but here's the big idea as we're going to see in verse 7. It's through the gospel the sojourning husband can live with his wife in such a way that magnifies the grace of God to the world. That's what we're going to see. So I want to start this week's message the way uh, I started last week's. And so last week we began looking at what submission is, what it's not, uh, because there are all kinds of wrong ideas that we see in our culture around us and, and wrong, and, and we struggle with this even in our own hearts. This week, I, so I want to say just what, what headship, headship is, what it's not. Now to be fair to this text that's in front of us, you read verse 7 and you say it doesn't say anything about headship. And it doesn't. And so, it's not even mentioned here. It's implicit based upon the context of what we saw in verses 1 to 6 and the wife submitting to her husband. And it's assumed based on other New Testament teaching like Ephesians chapter 5 where we give those instructions as the husband is the head of the wife and the wife's to submit to, her, to his headship. And so Peter's, but Peter's not making a case for biblical headship. He's, he's writing to encourage the proper use of it. And so it's assumed but not explicit. So, but, but I do think it is important for us to differentiate. What is it? What is it not? So first of all, what it's not. A few statements here. One, biblical headship does not mean harsh or overbearing use of authority. That will be very clear in this text. And it's clear in every passage that deals with headship. Colossians 3.19, for example, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. So I know that this passage, uh, this idea of biblical headship has been used by men to support uh, abusive behavior, bullying, and, and, and that kind of overbearing use of abuse of authority. But that is not a biblical form of headship. Second, Biblical headship is not a means for self-satisfaction and self-exaltation. That is not the point. It is always others-oriented. Third, biblical headship does not mean that your job is to make your wife submit. The Bible does not say, husbands, get submission out of your wives. It's not husbands, rule your wives. The Bible's message is, husbands, love your wives. Husband, you are called to live with her, biblically, live with her in an understanding way. We're going to see that today. Showing honor, not being harsh, to be tender-hearted, to lay down your life, to serve your wife. And so these are the types of commands that are given to husbands as heads of the home. Next, biblical headship does not imply lesser importance for the wife. Now, we talked about this last week at length, but it's not about superiority or inferiority. Wives are equal to their husbands in terms of spiritual privilege and eternal importance and on. Again, we're going to see this very clearly in our text today. Next, biblical headship does not imply equal sharing of leadership in the family. So to say that it's, it's not that overbearing use of authority does not mean there is no, there is no authority or no uh, headship. Biblical, Peter tells husbands to act in a thoughtful, a considerate, understanding way toward their wives, but he never tells the husbands to submit to their wives as he does tell the wives to submit to their husbands. So there is differentiation in roles. The roles are not of husband and wife are not interchangeable where you can say, well, in our home we do it this way. No, we, God has laid these roles out by His good and wise, loving design for the home. 
And so when he says likewise, in the same way, it does not mean submit just like the wife. But he's, he's showing a continuation of what he's talking about. He's connecting it to what he said to the wives. If there's submission of the husband, it's submission to that institution of marriage, submission to the design of God for him to have this kind of loving headship in the home. Next, loving biblical headship does not always mean giving in to a wife's wishes. Again, it's to say that it's not a, a bullying, you just, you just do what I say, that's definitely not biblical headship. But, it, but, but wives, just like wives aren't to obey their husbands whenever the husband asks them to sin when they're, or, or to obey their husbands when they would be disobeying God, so husbands must not allow their love for their wives, their consideration for their wives to be an excuse for sin. And I know this does happen. Wayne Grudem, I think, has a very helpful comment along these lines. He says, It will take much prayer and knowledge of Scripture for a husband to be able to tell the difference between a morally wrong choice being urged on him by his wife and a morally right choice that just differs from his personal preference or judgment of how things should be done. So we need that kind of wisdom. But there will will be times in every marriage when a godly husband will simply have to make decisions that affect the whole family and that may go against his wife's desires and preferences that he nonetheless is convinced before God is right. And that's not normal where he's going to... But there are those times. And then last, I just say biblical headship is not optional for husbands. It's not optional. Just like willing submission to one's own husband is not optional for Christian wives, so loving headship is not optional for Christian Husbands. Husbands can't opt out of this. Can't opt out of leadership and become kind of passive non-participants in family life and in decisions and that kind of thing. Neither can they make the the opposite error of of, uh, exercising this harsh, selfish, domineering authority in their families. But so so the, the 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 call to husbands is the same for all of us. It's to live, considerately, grant honor. But in doing this, we can't escape, again, the responsibility to lead that is implicit in the commands to the wives to submit to the husbands. So that's what it's not. Just real quick, what, it is, what, what is biblical headship? I, I'm just borrowing this definition. This is from Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem, and there were others that contributed, but... Say it this way, the, the primary responsibility for Christ-like, it, it, what is it? It's the primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. And so that's all we'll say now. We're going to see this unfold in this passage as, we, again, we see kind of the, the tone and flavor of this in a home and how this works out. And so I want to focus on the verse that's in front of us, though. And so we'll give our attention there, uh, showing us what the character of this headship is. And so how are Christian husbands, husbands who are exiles and sojourners like their wives, how are we to live with our wives? First statement is this is sojourning husbands are to be lifelong students in the university of matrimony. And I say that from that opening phrase. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's our focus right now. So he's saying a a few things with those words, and we'll unpack this more, but just a quick overview of what he's saying right there. What he's calling us to as husbands is not some big marriage moment, like husbands, just do this this one thing. 
He's not calling us to reach some level of status where if you've got to get your certification in marriage and like, alright, now you're good. You, you've made it. You've arrived as a, as a godly husband. That's not it. What He's calling us to is this consistent, lifelong, lifestyle, living of togetherness with our wives. We're going to see that in more in a moment, but, and we'll define what it means to live with them and how he's using this expression. But this is a present tense verb here, and so it's describing continuous action, a habit of our life. We're to live with our wives in this way. And then, second aspect of this is he's calling us to knowledge. To he says to live with them in an understanding way. That's a great translation. Uh, some of your translations may maybe say it, it, to being considerate. And, and it is being considerate as we think of that. But it's more than kind of our uh, idea of just, just being, being nice or considerate of our wives. It's more than that as we're going to see. It literally means, if you translate it from the Greek, according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. So let's take those, but we'll take them in reverse order. And and so the first thing to say, knowing is half the battle. I, mean, I realize we're probably not best to borrow language from G.I. Joe when we're talking about uh, marriage. Marriage isn't exactly like cartoon warfare with, you know, blue lasers and red lasers, that kind of thing. But it's Father's Day, and this generation of fathers, this is how we speak. So, um, but, but live with your wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge. That, that, that word understanding or knowledge there, the... the the idea of this Greek word, it means to grasp the full reality or nature of something. And we do that by, this, this knowledge is based on uh, careful evaluation and personal experience. So it's not just memorize facts. It's not, you know, four principles to being a, a godly hu- husband. That's not what we're talking about. It's like, I just got to memorize these things and then I've got it. That's not the kind of knowledge that Peter's talking about. He's talking about learned by experience, we understand the real nature and, and, <coughs> and grasp the full reality of something. And so being a godly husband isn't just a matter of kind of natural abilities or personality or, or just your force of will. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do this and, and make my home a functioning well. No, it's, it's gained knowledge. That's where it starts. So we must know, we must always be learning in order to properly live with our wives. So, what do we need to know? Well, it's, it's, it's multifaceted knowledge. What are some of the things we need to know? We need to know what God says about marriage. First and foremost. Even if you don't take everything else that Scripture says about marriage, which it says a whole lot, but if we just restrict ourselves to the immediate context, there, there's a lot that a husband needs to know. He needs to know what honor is. He needs to know what, what a, when, when the Bible says woman, what, what that's communicating. Feminine. Femininity. He needs to know what it means to be weaker. He needs to know what a vessel is. He needs to, he needs to know what it means that she's an heir with him. He needs to know what it means, uh, he needs to know about this grace of life that, that's coming to them. He needs to know how marriage relates to prayer. And so that's just in this one little verse. So there, there's a, there's, there's, Truth that God has revealed that we need to know. That's a lot of knowing right there. But, but it's more than that. We also, we need to know the wife that we're married to. I, I think that's very clear from the context here. As Peter's using this to live according to knowledge in an understanding way. In other words, we don't just know about marriage theoretically or about 
a wife in general, like, okay, here's, here's the you know, caricature of a wife, and so you just need to study it like it's National Geographic or something, and then, all right, I got, I got marriage down. This is how we all go into marriage, men, if we're honest, but this is not reality. And so we, we need to study, we need to learn, we need to know our own wives, because every wife is different from other wives. So every husband needs to be an avid student of his wife in order to live with her in this way, in an understanding way, according to knowledge. You should know her personality, her likes and dislikes, her, uh, her needs, her desires, her strengths and weaknesses, her fears, the things she stays up late at night worrying about, the, her hopes, her interests, her joys, what are the things that just make her smile. Her preferences, I mean just how she takes her coffee, favorite foods, favorite book, and why. What gifts God has given her. What things she does for the Lord in which she finds great fulfillment. And then what do we do? We, we find opportunities for her to do those things regularly. What are the things she finds most difficult in obeying God? What are her greatest temptations? What are her, what are her cues? She's wanting to connect more with us. And so... So this is part of it, living according to knowledge with our wives. We know what God says. We, we, we need to know our wives. How do, we, how do we grow in this? It's not automatic. It's not like, oh, yeah, I got it. That's, that's fine. I, I, knew her. I knew her from the moment I saw her. From the first date, I had her figured out. You know, No, not at all. It takes time. It takes deliberate effort. So it's got to be a lot of time spent together observing, asking questions, and listening. Now, let me say this real quick. Men, please hear this. This knowledge is a sacred trust that you must guard with great care. And this is part of what we're going to see as the, as the wife is a, as a weaker vessel. This is part of your protective care of your wife. You guard the knowledge that you have of your wife. It should never, you should never use this knowledge as a way to manipulate her. You know where she's tempted. You know where her weaknesses are. And you, uh, we, can, we can do this, with, not just with our wives, but in any relationships. We can use those against them. You should never bring up some vulnerable, vulnerable point of knowledge that you have about her as artillery in a disagreement that you're having with her. And so, so it's got to be guarded carefully. But, but you, we, we, need to, we need to know them. This is part of how we're to live with them. It's according to knowledge. And then, the, the other facet of this knowledge, and there may be more, but I think clear from the context, I think these three are evident. We need to know the gospel. We need to know the gospel and how it intersects with our, with our, in our marriage. This is implicit in the phrase that we're going to see in, later in this verse, as heirs with you of the grace of life. And so Peter's pointing to these vast spiritual riches that are ours equally as husband and wife through Jesus Christ. And so we should, we should live according to this new spiritual gospel knowledge, not according to our former ignorance, as he said back in chapter 1, verse 14. But, the, but this good news of Jesus Christ is to be the blazing center of all our relationships, in particular our marriage. You can't live with your wives according to knowledge in an understanding way without this kind of knowledge, without the gospel. And so the husband should, should be leading his wife in this fuller knowledge of all that God has done for, 
them in Christ and all that He has prepared for those who love Him. And as they, as He does this, there will, there will be growth and intimacy that will be deeper and more wonderful than, than anything that the world can know. And so this is all part of this. So we, 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 need, to, we need to be lifelong learners, husbands. We're be live, if we're going to live with them in an understanding way, we've got we to be learners. We're not to simply live with our wives according to our feelings, according to our words, and, and you know, these commitments that we make so quickly, according to rules, according to traditions, according to our culture. We're to live with them according to knowledge, in an understanding way. And that brings us to, so if knowing is half the battle, what's the other half of the battle? It's living. Living is the other half. And we go back to the beginning of this verse. Live with your wives in an understanding way. So you may be thinking, I've got the living part down. (laughs) We have the same address. We share the same bed. We get our milk from the same fridge. I live with my wife. That part I got. But this word means more than simply just sharing living quarters. It's only used here in the New Testament, but in the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's kind of the, the Bible of the apostles, this is what, they, what most of the church used, and they read the Old Testament. It was this Greek translation. In the Old Testament, it refers to, this sexual, to sexual intimacy in marriage. Not always, but that's just showing the level of closeness that we're talking about. So when he says live or dwell, he's saying really live with them. Be one with them, intimately dwelling with our wives. I think he, he, here in this context, it just means living with closeness, togetherness in marriage. So husbands, if we're, we're going to heed these words, it's, it's our job to promote physical, spiritual, emotional, even spatial closeness. Closeness that's only possible through this covenant union of Christian marriage. And so it's worth noting, I think, that Peter puts the responsibility of this closeness and togetherness on the husbands, not the wives. <laughs> you know, I know I realize in our culture men tend to be or women tend to be the more relational ones. They're more communicative in general, not in all cases, but but that's that's more common. But the Bible puts the burden for intimacy in the marriage primarily on the husband, not the wife. Not that the wife shouldn't also promote it and pursue it and seek it out. That's not my point. But the husband has this responsibility before the Lord. So how do we develop and maintain this kind of togetherness in our marriage? As I said earlier, when we talk about knowing, certainly it means spending time together. I mean, lots of time. We are doing things together. And I mean, just very normal taking walks, eating meals, <coughs> going on dates, going shopping, those kinds of things, yard work. It means being careful not to end up living in separate orbits. And I realize that's, that's, a, that's a real temptation for us. It's, it's easy if you don't deliberately resist this kind of tendency. I mean, I think, I think this is somewhat unique I think in which the context in which Peter wrote, he's basically writing to people in a very agrarian society and they lived in probably a one-room house and so life, they couldn't get away from one another almost in the small little villages. We live in these big houses and, and even if you say my house is big, it's big compared to everybody else in the world. 
And so we have space, and so we can separate. And we got TVs and all these different. We can we can have life. So we, we live under the same roof, but we're we're in different orbits. And we all have our own cars, and we all have our own. You know, we just go constantly going in other directions, and we cross in the night sometimes. We we got to be careful. Being together, it's being together so that our lives are intertwined, and no no marriage is immune from the possibility of drift. Husbands don't think once we once we have kids, you know, if you're a young husband starting out, you know, and you're trying to just get on your feet, and so well, once we have kids, we'll slow down and we'll focus more on our marriage. Mm-mm. Or or one no, that's not happening. Or once the kids get out of diapers, now that's more realistic, but um, but still, that's not that's not it. Or once once the once the nest empties, or once I retire, you know. At, at this next phase of life, then I'll focus on living with my wife in an understanding way and focus on her marriage. No. Listen, God will give whatever grace you need to obey whatever He calls you to in whatever season of life you're in. And so He, he wants to help you now. Maybe today the Lord is graciously calling you back to vows that you made to your wife. Um months ago or years ago or decades ago that you have seen drift in your life. There's there's a poem and it I don't this is not scripture, but I, I thought it was helpful and I I I'm gonna read it and, and the author is unknown. It's called The Wall. You may have seen this before, but I, I think it speaks to this point. The, the wedding pictures mocked them from the table, these two whose minds no longer touched each other. They lived with such a heavy barricade between them that neither battering ram of words nor artilleries of touch could break it down. Somewhere between the oldest child's first tooth and the youngest daughter's graduation, they lost each other. Sometimes she cried at night and begged the whispering darkness to tell her who she was. He lay beside her, snoring like a hibernating bear, unaware of her winter. She took a course in modern art, trying to find herself in colors splashed upon a canvas and complaining to other women about men who were insensitive. He climbed into a tomb called The Office, wrapped his mind in a shroud of paper figures, and buried himself in customers. Slowly the wall between them rose, cemented by the mortar of indifference. One day, reaching out to touch each other, they found a barrier they could not penetrate. And recoiling from the coldness of the stone, each retreated from the stranger on the other side. For when love dies, it is not in a moment of angry battle, nor when fiery bodies lose their heat. It lies panting, exhausted, expiring at the bottom of a wall it could not scale. Now, I, I don't. what I don't like is I don't want it to sound like face, uh, fatalism, like, oh, you lost love and so it can't be recovered. No. Brothers and sisters, that's not my point. But I'm just, I, 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 I read that because I think it illustrates this this, this tendency that can be there for lives to just kind of drift apart. And unless husbands and wives, we're actively uh, cl- uh, holding on to and obeying what the Lord has called of us. This could, this could be us. And so no one plans for that to happen. But we all know it does happen way too often, even among believers. And it's not, it's not just the husband who, begin, who can begin to drift. But as head, the husband has the unique opportunity and responsibility before the Lord to make learning in marriage a lifelong pursuit. This is what Peter is calling us to. If there's, if there's drift in your marriage, man, take the initiative to, to bring things back together. 
Don't just be passive and get dragged in to talk with the you know, pastor or something like that. You, you take the initiative. This, this doesn't mean that the wife can't act first if she notices growing distance in the relationship. That's not my point at all. But it does mean that we as husbands ought to be active and not passive in developing and maintaining and pursuing a close relationship with our wives. All right, so that's the first thing. We, 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 we are to, to sojourning husbands. They make learning this lifelong pursuit and a learning of our learning of what God says about marriage, learning of what uh, about our wives, learning the gospel, and it's again it's to be throughout our whole lives, living closer and closer together. Second, sojourning husbands give honor to whom honor is due. So he says, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So when they say, I'll give honor to whom honor is due, we're not saying the honor is due your wife because she is so intrinsically deserving of it. That's not the point. It's not based on her inherent personal worth. No, what Peter is saying explicitly, it's due to God's good design that she's worthy of, worthy of honor and the ascribed worth that she has by virtue of her union with Jesus Christ. Those are the reasons that we must show our wives honor, esteem, value, worth, praise. That's the idea of honor. And it's, and it's showing, it's granting. It's not, uh, it's, it's, it means we're actively assigning this honor. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But, it, but this clearly means it's not just thinking nice, honorable thoughts about our wives. It's more active than that. It includes how we speak to her and, and about her uh, to others. It comes kind and affirming words. It certainly would mean that the husband prioritizes over all other human relationships his wife and, and his family in terms of the allocation of his time and, and resources and those kinds of things. So Peter gives us two specific reasons that we're to show honor to our wives. First of all, she's due honor as a delicate instrument. And now just hang on with me. If you're like, eh, I don't like that, that sounds. I, I'll hopefully explain that. So he says, first of all, show, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now why is she called a vessel? That's kind of a strange, you know, a bunch of vessels out here. That's... First of all, notice she, he says she's the weaker vessel, which means that the husband and wife are both vessels, whatever vessel means. So sometimes in Scripture, this word is used of um, concerning sexual anatomy. We'll just say it that way. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think she's making saying one is stronger or weaker in that area. That doesn't fit the bigger picture of how we're to relate to one another as in our marriage as exiles and sojourners. I don't think that's the point. I think he's using vessels here simply to refer to our bodies. And this is another use of this word. You see it in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, 7, this, or chapter 4, verse 7, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in jars of clay, um, and it's referring to our bodies there. And I think that's the idea. I think he's saying, in general, the wife or the woman has... The weaker vessel or body. And men tend to be physically stronger than women. Don't prove me wrong by charging the stage at this point. I mean, just in general, I think we recognize this. This is why I have men's and women's sports in the Olympics, or the, the men compete and the women compete. The World Cup's going on right now. There's a men's and there's a women's. There's a, there's a PGA, there's the LPGA, the NBA, WNBA. And so, so we see it in sports. Now I realize life is not sports, but it's Father's Day, so I use that as an illustration. I mean, there are certainly cur- certain careers that are more dominated by, 
by men, and I and there are some because of the sexism that's been kind of in part of our society, but and others it's just the percentage construction workers and law enforcement and military and those kinds of things are have more men. So what's going on with all of that? Why why is that the case? Why would we tolerate any kind of discrimination like this against women? Force men's and women's sports to be separate? Because almost everybody acknowledges that men have a genetic advantage when it comes to physical strength. Uh, this is true. Man has that Y chromosome. Women, it's X, X. Men, it's X, Y. And so in God's creative wisdom, this produces a different kind of strength and stamina that's different in men than women. Again, we're speaking in generalities here. I, I realize that there are, uh, there are many women who can do more push-ups than I can and can run farther and faster and could probably could pummel me in a fight and, and, uh, and are more nimble than me and there are women athletes who can beat me in any sport that's out there. So that's, that's not my point. But there's still this profound, remarkable difference in general in the way that God has set up male and female. He's ordained that in general men have a stronger vessel, body. Women have the weaker vessel. So husbands, your arms are probably longer. And your shoulders are probably broader. And your hands are probably larger. Again, not in every case, but just in general. You're pound for pound probably more powerful than she is. So just take that and with that, acknowledging that, Peter says this, rather than taking advantage of your wife... Because she is physically weaker, you should treat her with honor. As you would this valuable precision instrument. So this is where I go back to treat, give her honor, do honor as a delicate instrument. A doctor would never think of using some expensive, delicate instrument that's used for, you know, robotic brain surgery and using it to pry a nail out of the floor. You say, that's, that's crazy, that's ridiculous. He, he would honor that instrument and would treat it very well. And that's, what we're, that's what we're saying here. So, Douglas Wilson, he says, the, the weakness Peter mentions is God's design, not a fault at all. Weakness is only a fault if it falls short of the design. A china cup is weaker than the five-pound sledge, but a hammer is no good at all for drinking tea. And so, we're just saying that differentiation of of the way that God has made us. So husbands, you, you need to understand this about yourself and about your wife. Don't use your physical strength to crush her. Sadly, there are many husbands who have done this very thing. They've leveraged their physical strength for sin and for selfish desires like Tamar who took advantage of Amnon since he was stronger than she, the text says, Second Samuel thirteen fourteen. So husbands, don't use your strength to crush, dominate, intimidate, bully your wife. Use it to protect your wife and provide for her. That's what Peter's saying. If you hear that door jiggle, door handle jiggle in the middle of the night or a, <coughs> a window pane break, you get out of bed. You don't say, Hey, I did it last time. You take care of it this time. No, it's always your turn. You always place yourself between your wife and any danger that she might face, if you can. You always hold her and shield her from danger. Honor her as a weaker vessel. 
It means anytime you have an opportunity to help her around the house with physical things. I mean, you know, standing in some line and she's holding the baby and she's, hold the baby. You're stronger than she is. And take the trash out. Kill the roach that's, you know, <laughs> scurrying across the floor. I mean, do those things. Again, I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying why you can't do those things and you don't do those things. You do these kinds of things all the time and your days are full of physical activity. And, and he's not saying women are weak. He's saying that women are weaker. And so I just my point is that any area where physical strength is an advantage, you should help her when you can. That's the point. And so when you, when you, let's take it out of the realm of those kinds of things. When you fail her, or when you hurt one another, when, you, when you've had an argument, husbands, you take the initiative in asking for forgiveness and seeking reconciliation with her. This is part of the opportunity you have to honor her as a weaker vessel. Second reason we, we were to honor our wives, she's due honor as a sister in Christ and as a daughter of the King. He says, since they are heirs with, the, with you of the, gospel, of the grace of life. Let me say that again. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, you should honor her. Your wife is not a second class citizen. Women are not second class citizens. Husbands, your wives are not your servants. No, your wife is a fellow image bearer of God and a fellow heir of the grace of eternal life. So show her honor. All those blessings that Patrick read earlier in Ephesians 1, those are not just true for you and she kind of gets a little trickle-off effect. No, those are said of her. And so even in the context of 1 Peter, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, according to God's great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to this inheritance that is imperishable, undefining, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Husbands, you are a fellow heir with your believing wife of that inheritance. It come, this inheritance comes about because you, along with your wives, have, have been born again by God the Father. We are now His adopted children. Children are inheritors of their fathers. And God's inheritance, therefore, is, is what God owns. And what does God own? That's exceedingly broad. He owns everything. And, and so, husbands, the, the, the woman you live with, if she's a Christian, is, is an heir to everything in the universe. <laughs> she is unbelievably wealthy, just as you are. That's, that's, that's how magnificent is her dignity. And you are co-heirs together with her of this... Grace of life. I think the life here in the context and other different interpretations, I, just, I think it means eternal life. And, and to say we're heirs of grace, it, we, we saw this earlier in chapter 1, verse 13. The, it's, it's this present possession that we have, but we have this future full acquisition of it. So back in one thirteen, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This full revelation of this grace is not just yours, Christian husband, it's also hers. We saw in, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, in this you rejoice, though for now, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I can't go back and preach those verses, but if you remember, there, that, that particular praise, honor, and glory is not about 
that going to God. It's about the, that which we will receive in that day. I say that this is yours, husband, and it's also your wife's at the revelation of Jesus Christ. She's an heir with you of the grace of life. All that is to characterize how we honor. I mean, the implications of this are staggering. You lay in bed every night, husbands, with an air of infinite glory. You are living with the daughter of the king of the universe who's about to inherit everything with you. And so that's not, that's not to say that, that the, the wife's role is the same as the husband's. It's not. That's clear in Scripture. The husband is to lead. The wife is to submit. We're not, we're not, we're not uh, muting and doling those edges. But a wife has every bit of much, as much a share in heaven as the husband can look forward to. That's what he's saying. And therefore, she is to be honored. A major part of honoring your wife, what does this look like and with chew leather? It's how you speak to her, how you speak about her. Put down sarcasm, mockery. It should not characterize your communication with your wife. I don't mean that you've got to be stiff and you know cold. I mean, you can't joke around at all. But you build her up. You breathe life into her. You encourage her. You, you express gratitude to God for her. You don't criticize her and tear her down. You're never harsh with her. Again, Colossians 3.19. If you have children, husbands, who are fathers, you, it's your job as head of the household to make sure your children honor their mother. You model it by treating her with honor and you enforce it by disciplining them when they dishonor or disrespect her. I think there's a great example in... in uh, Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. Uh, if you've read his letters to her, and she's actually, she later published uh, many of the letters that were exchanged between the two of them, and very tender and very intimate. But he, he wrote often um, letters to his wife as he traveled and preached. And let me just, these particular words resonate with me as a pastor. He says, My own dear one, none know how grateful I am to God for you. In all I have ever done for him, for God, you have a large share. For in making me so happy, you have fitted me for service. Not an ounce of power has ever been lost to the good cause through you. I have served the Lord far more and never less for your sweet companionship. The Lord God Almighty bless you now and forever. That's just one of countless examples of the way he spoke to her. And, and so again, after his death, Susanna published many of these letters. And it was a difficult task for her to kind of put them together and edit them and that kind of thing. And this is what she said about that task. Just listen to this. I have been trying in these pages to leave the love out of the letters as much as possible. (laughs) She realized they were a little dripping with, you know, romance, that kind of thing. Lest my precious things should appear but platitudes to my readers. It is a difficult task, though. For little reels of tenderness run between all the sentences, like the singing, dancing waters among the boulders of a brook. And I cannot still the music altogether. To the end of his beautiful life, it was the same. His letters were always those of a devoted lover as well as of a tender husband. Not only did the brook never dry up, but the stream grew deeper and broader, and the rhythm of its song waxed sweeter and stronger. That's good. So one of the things, I mean, you take that, so that's beautiful. But you don't know my wife, you don't know my husband. One of the things you realize about Susanna Spurgeon is she was a very sickly woman, as was Charles Spurgeon. 
We know that more. That's more well known. But for, for, for a few years, she was an invalid. She never left the house because she was so sick. She couldn't travel. She couldn't be with him and his ministry and supporting him in that way. And yet for years, he would, he, he would, he would go off and preach. She'd be home alone. And yet these words just freely flowed from his mouth and through his pen. As, and, and that no doubt caused her own soul to flourish, which is what you see even in her sickness. That's a great, great example. All right, so we're called to, 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 to live with our wives in this understanding way, showing honor to them as, as the weaker vessel and as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Now, if we don't do that, if we don't obey that call to us, what can we expect? And I think this is a somewhat startling conclusion. We just have a couple minutes here. I would think Peter would have said something like, live like this, husbands, um, so that you will have a happy marriage. Or live this way as a godly husband so that God will be glorified. And both of those are true, of course, but Peter calls our attention to something we sometimes forget. That there's this connection between our relationship with with our wives, with people, and, and praying to the Lord. So he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Say the last point this way. Sojourning husbands, keep the path to God in prayer clear from obstructions. He says that your prayers may not be hindered. It's a a military term. It's like an army digging a ditch uh, in in a road to stop an enemy's advance and, you know, felling trees and trying to create obstacles to keep them from being able to move down the path. Anything to slow them down. That's, That's the idea of hindrance here. And so it's possible for our prayers to God to be hindered. To be obstructed in some way. Conversely, if you live with your wife in an understanding way, showing her honor, then your prayers will not be hindered. They will be helped. And so the question is, in what way might our prayers be hindered if we're not living with, with our wives and honoring them appropriately? He doesn't really tell us. <laughs> Sorry. Um, he doesn't say specifically, this is how your prayers will be hindered. I think we can infer much. Maybe this, maybe this, I've given a lot of, I'm not trying to take the easy way out here. I've thought a lot about this. I have read hundreds of pages on this this week. And, and my answer is, I don't know. Um, sorry. Maybe this will hinder us from praying. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Our broken relationship will make it hard for us to kneel in prayer. There you go. And there's Mike. <laughs> um, Maybe this will hinder God from listening, from answering our prayer. Maybe our prayers won't be, as Scripture talks about, as effectual. Maybe it's a form of God's fatherly discipline. We, Hebrews 12, 3-11, it's, 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 it's for our good. It's given to those He loves. Not, it's not wrath. It's not punishment. It's not angry God. No, it's love. But He, he, he cares so much about our marriage and how we relate to our wives that He, 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 he in some way allows this hindrance in our praying. I, I, I'm not sure. So we, maybe it doesn't get out of our mouths. Maybe it doesn't, it, it's, it's not received by God. Maybe both are involved. But the point is not that we got to figure out exactly how it is that our prayers are hindered. That's not it. If Peter thought that was so important, he would have told us. The point is that anything which might possibly hinder prayer in some way, we should actively avoid. And prayer, of all things, it's so vital to our relationship with the Lord. 
And, and so we, we need to acknowledge that, I mean, and this is one thing, we need to acknowledge that in general, Christians today have some pretty messed up ideas when it comes to thinking about prayer. We, we so easily fall into this legalistic, moralistic trap of thinking that we pray to get God on, on, to get on God's good side. So we treat prayer like it's a way of kind of earning the brownie points with God or something like that. I prayed this morning before school, before work, so therefore I expect this to be a really good day. I have a quiet time. Or I didn't pray this morning, so uh, it's probably going to be really bad. I don't know what I'm going to face when I get to work today. I'm all for praying. I'm all for praying in the mornings. But thinking of prayer as some kind of sacrifice to appease a grumpy God is poisonous to your soul. Prayer will always feel like a burden or a drudgery or just some duty we have to, a box we have to check off. Or maybe we think, I haven't been good enough, so I better not pray right now. I need to kind of clean my act up first before I can say Father and Him actually care. So husbands may think, let me get my relationship with my wife better and then I'll pray. After all, my prayers are hindered anyways. So we, we think we need to earn this hearing before the Lord. No, that is not at all what Peter's saying. He's not saying, stop praying until you get your act together, then pray and then God will hear you. No, he's, the assumption is there's this continual praying to God. He's saying you, you need the lines open. You need, you need to be, to be constantly leaning into God. And, and, and so, but don't, don't think that you can just completely neglect this relationship that you have with this wife that God has given to you. This is for the Lord's sake that He's given you this wife. And don't think you can neglect that and just, everything's fine. So, again, I don't have time to develop a theology prayer in the next three minutes. Um, but just consider this. The prayer conversation doesn't start when we open our mouths. And we think like that. We think like God's just sitting by the phone uh, waiting for us to call and then prayer begins when we, when we pick up the other end. That's not it at all. We tend to think like that. Though I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to schedule some time with God so I can, can pray. And so, we, yeah. how, how much did you pray today? I prayed 30 minutes. I prayed 20 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night, maybe a few other little times in between when I had meals. You shouldn't be able to answer the question, how much time did you spend praying today? That, that's, that's defeating the whole point. There's, what, as you think about prayer, think of it in this way. There is already a conversation going on among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's been going on from all eternity. Whenever we pray, whether it's scheduled in the morning or night, or whether it's spontaneous, we are simply joining in that conversation. That's how Scripture speaks of it. And so it takes pressure off of us to, quote, make prayer happen. Instead, we're graciously invited to enter into this eternal conversation in a creaturely way, mind you, and this is why we have passages like, like this. But the dialogue is already going on in the life of God. And, and He's not waiting for us to get it started. Now, I, I realize He said, what does that have to do with this? But I, I just, we have such wrong-headed ways of thinking about prayer. We come to this and we, we, just, you know, we just see it as a box check and I've got to get this and so I can do this and make God happy. That's just not it at all. But somehow, my involvement in this ongoing conversation is hindered. I don't want to mute that either. If I refuse to live with my wife in an understanding way, honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life and as a weaker vessel. It's not that God doesn't hear. He hears and knows everything. It must in some way mean that I'm just just out of sync with the rest of the conversation. 
or I'm unwilling to join in. All right, well, we want to we want to sing to Christ in a moment, and husbands. I know you get Father's Day and you think, man, what I really need right now, and we all feel this, I need a good swift kick in the pants. And so just tell me how bad, how lousy I am. We kind of like this. We, to bring it on, tell me what I need to be doing. Some of us do. Some of us recoil against this. But we don't, we don't just need a swift kick in the pants. We need Jesus. We need Him. Look to Him. I mean, this is the whole context of this. Right now, again, we come, keep coming back to this. The whole anchor of the passage. Eric walked us through a few weeks ago. It's in verse 22 of chapter 2. He committed no sin, Jesus. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like a sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I mean, what a picture. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The one who was before all things and who made all things and holds all things together by the word of his power. The one to whom every knee will one day bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That one is the model of submission and servant-hearted love. Husbands, Jesus died to set you free from condemnation. And He died to set you free from this slavery to sin and self. Because of Christ, we don't have to succumb to those sinful passions that Peter talked about earlier, which wage war against our souls anymore those passions which are like gravel in the machinery of our marriage. We don't have to give in to that. No, Jesus does not stand over you today as this angry taskmaster saying, get it together. No, what, is this, what did we just read? He, he, he is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. He's brought us, He's brought you into the fold. And He keeps you and He protects you, and He won't let you go, and He's feeding you, and even the fact that you're here today is part of that shepherding work of your soul. So receive that shepherding love of your Lord and respond to it and let it lead to warm-hearted obedience to what He's called you to. Let's pray. Father, would You... Um, as we realize that the task for us as husbands is so great, and we, we're not talking about what it means to then be the father, and, and just add that in, we feel this enormous weight, and yet we know, Father, that we have far more in terms of resources in Jesus Christ than we have in terms of expectations and responsibilities. You've given us all the grace we need in Jesus so help us, if nothing else, if we do nothing else today, help us to, to move towards you in trust and confidence and dependence and, and love as we seek to obey what you've called us to as husbands, to live with our wives in an understanding way, to honor them as weaker vessels, as fellow heirs of the grace of life, so that our prayers to you will not be hindered. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.